If you've been with us, we've been in 1 Peter. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to 1 Peter. And we've been going through this series titled Identity Matters. Identity Matters, right? So twofold. One, the matters of identity, uh, but also identity matters for life. A lot of things are dictated by your identity or your perceived identity, who you think you are or who, who you believe you are. And so today we're looking at verses 9 and 10. You can see on the screen, on purpose and with purpose. I believe that you'll see this morning that God has given you an identity on purpose and that he's given you an identity with purpose. So, we're going to pick up, actually starting in last week, you'll see on the screen, uh, verses 7 and 8. If you were here last week, Todd preached uh, through the verses prior, and it's important because if you start in verse 9 tonight, you start with the word but, but that is weird because it'd be like, well, but what? That doesn't really make sense. So we have to go back and look at the previous teaching, and look what was said in verses 7 and 8. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So you have a a people that were destined to disobey the word. People who will not hear it, who will stumble over Jesus, will stumble over the word as they were destined to you. And that brings us into verse 8 today. But you. Good news, right? I don't think any of us would raise our hands and say, yeah, I want to I stumble over the word. I want to be the person described in verse 8. But you, follow along with me now in verse 9, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So two different types of people. Last week, the one who stumbles as they were destined to do. And this week, a lot of identity being talked about in verse 9. So we're going to start there. Okay, I'm going to make this claim for you. Identity matters for the purpose of your life. Maybe you agree with that statement. Maybe you don't. But I believe it's true. I believe your identity matters. Everyone, whether we know it or not, is either consciously or subconsciously seeking an identity. Because your identity is going to drive what is your purpose or your perceived purpose for life. Let me give you an example. If you're on a sports team, imagine you think you're the quarterback, but you're actually a lineman. That's not going to work very well. If you've been given the identity of a lineman, you have a specific purpose to do, right? That's, if you don't know sports, that's not the guy who throws the ball. That's a different guy. Think about your work. Think about your workplace right now and the role that you have, the title you've been given. That, in a sense, is an identity. There's a job description, hopefully, and a role attached to your identity. You are the manager of X, or you're this assistant director to this. That is your identity within your workplace. And therefore, there's roles and responsibilities and purpose that come out of that, right? Imagine if everyone who works with you tried to do the same job. One, chaos would ensue. And two, 
a lot of other things would fall by the wayside because people are doing things that are not under their identity and not under their purpose. So I think identity matters. If we understand our identity, it's going to drive our purpose. There's been many books written. I tried to Google that this week. How many books have been written about identity? I couldn't get a number, but it's a lot, right? Everyone in the world wants to know, help me know my identity. Help me know what's the purpose of my life. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're like, well, I kind of, I have an idea, but I don't really know what my purpose is. I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. I'm trying to figure out my calling. I'm trying to figure out God's will for my life. If you consider yourself a Christ follower, if you've bowed your knee to Jesus and said, yes, I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. Come into my life. Make me new. Rescue me from damnation. Bring me into your kingdom. And I have good news this morning. We're going to look at four identities for the Christ follower. Four identities for the Christ follower that come out of verse 9. And they're not super complex. You can read, I'm sure. So you can read them and see them. The first one is this. A chosen race. To me, that sounds good, but what does it actually mean? We're going to break down each of these quickly and give us a little, hopefully, fuller understanding of what's, what's really being said here. A, a chosen race. The original word there can be used to mean chosen, but also elect. Right? Think back to the very first sermon of this series. Chapter 1, verse 1. Elect exiles. Right? Elect feels really good. Hey, you're chosen. You've been, it's like you're at recess. You've been chosen for kickball. You're not stuck on the wall waiting to be picked for a team. Or you've been chosen. Good news. But a chosen race. Genos. If you're a biology person, that might sound like a word that I think you guys use called genus, right? The determine families of uh, anatomy and all that jazz. I'm probably even saying it wrong. But family, offspring, a race. You have a family. Maybe you're close to them, maybe you're not. But you have a family that you've been born into. The only way you get a family is by being born, right? The only way you get to be part of that is because you were born into it. This is what Isaiah says in chapter 43. He says, I give waters in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. Same thing. The idea of being chosen. Chosen by God. If you're a Christ follower, you are chosen to be part of a new family, a new offspring, a new people. You're no longer in exile. Deuteronomy says this. Chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord says love on and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But, listen to this, verse 8, Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. If you believe in Jesus, if you consider yourself a Christian, that's only because God loves you. He made a way. He made it possible. It's not your own doing. God shows you before the foundation of the world for a specific purpose. So we go from 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1 
being elect exiles, that sounds kind of paradoxical, right? You're elect, but you're also an exile. So you're chosen, but you're also out in the run with nowhere to rest, nowhere to lay your head. You don't have a family. You're just going. You're homeless. You're a refuge. You're out. You're an exile. That doesn't sound necessarily good. Now, chapter two, the tone changes. All this culmination is intro to this moment in verse nine. You're an elect exile, sure, but you're a chosen race. There's two races of people. There's God's chosen and God's not chosen. If you believe in Jesus, that means that you're a chosen race. That you're chosen by God for a specific purpose. Let's look at the next one. After that he says, you are a, a royal priesthood. The word there for royal can be used for king-like or belonging to a king. But I think more interesting is the use of the word priesthood. A body of priests, a collection of priests. What does that mean? Maybe if you're like me, I grew up in the Catholic church, so I hear the word priests and I kind of get a little fuzzy and wonder like, well, what's that really mean? Minor saying of priests was something far different than what's being talked about here, right? Because if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a priest. You're part of the priesthood. That begs the question, well, what must a priest do? In your free time, you could read Leviticus and go to chapter 21 and read about priests and and what makes a priest a priest and what their obligations and duties are. But here, to put it simply, the role of the priest was to offer sacrifices to God. Now, suddenly, we're being called priests. Suddenly, we are the royal priesthood. Not only here in this room at Summit Church, but beyond the globe, whoever's me this morning under Jesus' name is part of the royal priesthood. It's been expanded. We're all priests. We still have a duty to offer sacrifices to God. Thank goodness it doesn't have to shed blood, right? You don't have to get all messy. You don't have to go get your chickens. Remain calm, okay? Remember, verse 5. Look up in your Bible if you have it open. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Todd talked about this last week. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. So suddenly it's starting to take form. Those who were exiled, those who were cast out, who didn't have a place, now you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. Under a kingly, royal bloodline. The bloodline of Jesus. He is our king that we are priesthood underneath. And our new birth has brought us into a family under the kingship of Jesus. So we must offer spiritual sacrifices. Just like verse 5. What does that look like? We'll talk about it in a minute. Helping us see the identity given to us here as a Christ follower. Here's the third one a holy nation. I feel like, as a whole, we're probably pretty comfortable with the word holy. I feel like we've talked about it, we've taught on it, we've heard it often, right? To be holy is to be set apart, specifically set apart for God and His purposes, right? It's the same word there, set apart. But then this is interesting. The word for nation, it could be used for a people group, but it's often used, that specific word for people, it's often used throughout scripture to talk about unbelieving Jews, heathens, pagans, Gentiles. Such are us, right? 
What a paradox again. Wait, you're holy, but you're an unbelieving heathen. You're holy, but you're a pagan. You're holy, but you're a Gentile non-believer. You don't fit the mold, but Peter's saying, you are holy. You are a holy nation. He put them together and said, look, this is your identity now. You once were cast out, but that's not so anymore. Set apart, pure for God, sure, born as a Gentile, born as an unbeliever, born to sin. But now, a new identity. If you're in Christ, you're a holy nation. Next one is number four. He says, a people for his own possession. Interesting, again, this is why words matter. When you study, it's important to look at the words because this word for people is a different word for people, right? It's the same word, people, people, right? One is used for a holy nation. This one is used for a people for its own possession. But this word is used all throughout scripture as people of God. So suddenly he's painting this picture of you were cast out, you were in exile, but now you're chosen as an unbeliever person who didn't belong to God originally, but now you do belong to God. You're a people of God for his own possession. Maybe your translation, depending on what you use, maybe your words say a peculiar people. Isn't that good? Peculiar. Or maybe it says a special possession. The idea of possession, I think, is very unique. As I thought about that this week, I thought, well, if, if I own something, think about things you may own. Whatever your favorite possession is, whether it's a vehicle or a certain thing in your home or a certain toy that you get to use or kids, maybe you're like, hey, I have this favorite toy that I got for my birthday. Who gets to decide how that possession is used. The owner, right? I can't come into your home and say, this couch is wrong. Hey, you're using your bicycle wrong. I don't get to do that. You're the owner. You get to dictate how the possession is used in your house because it's yours. What if we start thinking rightly about that? A people for God's own possession. Acquired by God. Responsible to God. Suddenly, we don't get to choose how we're used anymore. Suddenly, it helps us realize, wait, wait, wait. Oh, I don't get to call the shots. I don't get to be God anymore. That word designates ownership. If you're a Christ follower, guess what? You belong to God. That's good news. That's a great identity to have. But that also delves into our purpose, which we're going to look at in a second. Four identities for the Christ follower. Listen to this. This is from Exodus 19. God tells Moses, I don't know why I said it like that. God tells Moses to tell Israel this, starting in verse 3. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say this to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, quote, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you indeed will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I would assume Peter had this in mind as he's writing these words. He's saying, hey, this is exactly this is a new idea. This is exactly what God told Moses regarding Israel. The same is true for the Christ follower. 
a chosen people, a holy nation, a race for God. So, four identities for the Christ follower. Let's put this forth. You have one purpose as a Christ follower. One purpose. Now, that doesn't mean there's not sub-purposes and other things that we should be doing with our life. But ultimately, it's this. Look at verse 9 again with me. You are a chosen race, a holy priest, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. That's the reason. God's given you an identity, not so you can feel good about yourself, not so you can like be, oh, I snuck out, I don't have to go to hell, I have a new identity, I get to be with Jesus forever. Sure, great, celebrate that. But realize there's far more going on here. It's not just so we can feel good about ourselves. Oh, I'm a Christian, that's good, good news. That is good news. But your purpose is this, that you would proclaim the excellencies of him. This word proclaim is the same word for publish or for putting forth. Think about that for a second. Proclaim, I feel like maybe, for me, that feels like a funny word because you hear it so often. It's like, well, what does that really mean to proclaim? But then I thought, oh, to publish. I feel like we're very familiar with that idea. If you use social media, you publish things, you put them forth, and they're a representation of you, right? The things that you share, the posts you put up, the comments you make, or if you send an email, everything that we do that we publish and put forth represents us and our identity in some capacity. The things we say, the way we live, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, that you may publish the excellencies of God, that you may put forth the excellencies of God. Take note, what's God doing in your heart right now as you think about that? How do you proclaim the excellencies of him right now? How did you proclaim his excellencies this last week? If you're like me, I'm stirring a little bit going, oh man, I've proclaimed some things this week. I've proclaimed some things about myself and how good I think I am. I've proclaimed some things to my children about how I'm in charge. I've proclaimed some stuff to my wife about how I make the decisions. But have I done this? Have I proclaimed the excellencies of God. This isn't a new idea. This is all throughout scripture. The purpose of the Christ follower. Look at Jeremiah 13. It'll be on the screen for you. For as a loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, a glory. God wants the glory. He's jealous for the glory. And guess what? He can do that because he's God. He gets to do that. We were created to glorify him. Look at the next passage here, Isaiah 43. I read you 20 already. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. God is eager for people to choose and call to himself for his own glory, for his own praise. That's our purpose. One more for you, Ephesians 1. Starting in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. All throughout scripture, 
God choosing people to be his and God telling them that the purpose to do it, to have that identity, is to glorify him and bring him honor and glory and praise. So you might be wondering, okay, sure. I get it. Identity, purpose. What does it even mean to proclaim the excellencies of God? What does that even look like? And what are those excellencies? Look at verse 9, if you have the text in front of you. That you may proclaim the excellencies, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All right, kids, you still with me? Are we awake? Hanging on? Someone's awake. Good. Hey, how many of you have a little nightlight in your room? Maybe you have like a, a little light in the corner, so if you wake up to go potty. How many of you are like in that mode of life where you're afraid of the dark? You can admit it. The dark's a little bit scary. Here's what's going to happen. Kids, it's going to get dark in here. The lights are going to go off. And here's what I want us to think. Let's sit in this moment. Sit in this darkness. There's something about the dark that's a little bit uncomfortable. You can't see me. Maybe you can. Maybe you can see my silhouette. You can't see me. I can't see your face. I don't know what expressions you're making. I don't know what's going on. My visual is limited. Imagine Lazarus. If you know the story of Lazarus, he sat in a tomb. He was dead. It was dark. And Jesus comes along and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come out. And he escapes the darkness. He's brought back to life. There's this theme throughout scripture of darkness and light. Maybe you're familiar with it. Here's some verses that speak to that. John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John 8, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 1 John 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now as the lights come back on, it feels a little more comfortable, right? You guys are like, oh, okay, I can exhale, I can get back to my coloring or whatever I was doing because now I can see. Sorry for interrupting that. Darkness and light. Maybe it's not that hard for you to reflect back to the moments of your life that you were living in darkness. Maybe it was recent. Maybe it was very vivid and strong darkness. But if you're a Christ follower, you've been called, like Lazarus, out of the darkness into light. You stepped out of the grave that you were living and into the light, which is relationship with God. In him there is no darkness. So look at this. You were living in darkness, but now you are living in light. That's an excellency of God, right? Amen. He transfers from the dominion of darkness. We don't have to be there anymore. We're in relationship with him. Look at verse 10. Here's the next one. He says, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had no identity. 
You had no place. You had no people group. You were just floating about amiss, trying to figure out life. But now you've been given identity. Now you're God's people. He continues to once you had not received mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. You experienced it. You were apart from it for, for a while. You started out apart from it. You didn't even know what God's mercy meant or what it felt like or what it tasted like, but now you've experienced it. You know the Lord's goodness, his kindness, his mercy for you that's new every morning. That's because of your identity. Is that a reason to proclaim the excellencies of him? I think it is. And how about this last one? You were born to sin, but now you are born again to life. The idea of being born is very interesting, right? None of us remember the moment we were born. Our parents hopefully do if they were there. But you're born once, and the only way to change family is through birth, right? You're born to a biological family. You're born and given an identity, right? My wife and I have had two children, so we're born, and it's like, here they are. They're now born into my family. Sorry, Solomon and Willow. The good and the bad, you get it all, right? How do you get a new family? How do you become a new race? Imagine if I said to you, hey, right now, in the next five seconds, change your race. Ready, set, go. You can't do it. You can't change your race. The only way to do so is by being born again. Again, think back to our first sermon in the series. Maybe you weren't here. You can go back and listen to it if you want. First Peter chapter one, verse three says this. It says that God has caused us, caused us, he made it happen, he did the work for us to be born again by his great mercy. Because of God, if you consider yourself a Christ follower, you've been born again and with that comes a new identity. You're no longer born to sin as we all are when we enter this world, but now you're alive in Christ. That's good news. The only way someone can change their true identity is by being born again. Sure, you can fake it. You can say, my identity is this now, or my identity is that. But at the core of it, you know. You either identify as someone who lives amongst the world, who's born to sin and will be paying for their sin, or you're born again and you have new life in Christ. Identity matters. Identity matters for the purpose of your life. Okay. So, identity, check. Purpose, check. That's all great and fine and good, right? We'd be done there and say, okay, we did it. We talked about identity. God's given us four identities here in First Peter 2. He's given us purpose for our life. But if you're like me, you hear that and you're not quite satisfied. You're like, well, but, but how do I even do that? Where does the rubber meet the road and how does that become a reality for me? We're going to look at two ways. First one is this. How do we proclaim? Proclaiming in deed. First Peter 2.12 Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Think about the things you do. Think about the way you live your life. Think about the time you sacrifice for others. The generosity that you share with other people. 
Think about your heart when someone shows up on your doorstep unannounced, hoping to come in. How's your hospitality? How are your actions? When's the last time that someone may have observed you doing something and their response was to glorify God? That's a tough one, isn't it? I can't even think. Now, we fully won't know, right? Because it's between them and the Lord. But when you think about your life, do you give people reason to glorify God by the way that you live? Do people, outsiders especially, observe your actions and go, oh my goodness, there must be a God. Look at what they're doing. This isn't like the world. They're acting differently. They're not like everyone else. Something about them is different. They glorify God because of your actions. We'll talk more about verse 12 next week. But I want you to remember that. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Here's a second one. Proclaiming in word. Again, later in the series, we'll get to this, chapter 3. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do you have hope? Think about that. I would suppose that most of us here have hope of some sort. Maybe it's been suppressed and buried deep because the worries and anxieties of life have overcome it. And it's like, oh, I forgot. And I forgot about the hope in Jesus that I have. I forgot about the identity that God gave me. I need my hope to be renewed. We need to remember this, folks. Because look, in your hearts, people are going to ask you and say, hey, give me, tell me why you have hope. Give me the reason. Why are you walking around with a smile all the time? Why are you facing a trial right now, but you don't seem worried? Are you ready to proclaim with your mouth in word, and share the reason for your hope. We do this through testimonies, which, guess what? We're going to have an opportunity to do that here this morning. We do this through singing God's praise. I just need to tell someone what God has done in my life. It's too good. I can't hold it in anymore. We do this through evangelism. Imagine the gift of God's goodness that he saved us as wretches from ourselves. But the enemy works in us and against us to sow doubt and fear and anxiety about evangelism. And yet that's the very thing we're called to do. We're called to go and make disciples. The anxieties aren't from God. The fear of rejection is not from God. You have a purpose to proclaim the excellencies of what God has done for you in your life. He's called you from darkness into the marvelous light. I can only imagine every single person in this room has at least one, probably more like five or maybe like ten people in your life who need hope. Who need to hear the excellencies of God proclaimed. Maybe they're a believer and they need hope right now. Maybe they don't know Jesus and they need hope because they know darn well when they look in the mirror that they're destined to death. That they have no chance on their own. They aren't going to make it. They need hope. We have an identity for that reason. Just like the person who doesn't get their identity, they're aimless, they're wandering, they have no purpose. We have four identities here for the reason that we proclaim what God has done in word and in deed. Let's make it personal. We come here Sunday mornings. Maybe you meet with your small group during the week. 
for some reason, culturally, the go-to question has become this. Hey, how's your week been? Hey, how's work going? Hey, you watched the game the other day? Hey, how'd that family event go? How was that picnic? Hey, how was that other thing? How are the kids? Now, those aren't wrong questions. Those are my go-to questions at well, obviously, because I came up with them. But what if we changed the nature of that and said, hey, what is God doing in your life right now? Hey, tell me, what's something exciting that we can proclaim the goodness of God this morning? Hey, I need to be encouraged. Tell me, what has God done in the last week in your heart? How is he working in you? How is he challenging you? How is he growing you? If we do that, some at church, things will change. We can talk about football games. I like to do that too. We can talk about the things that happen during the week. But what if the heart was more, hey, I just got to know. I'm so eager to hear what's God doing. Tell me what God's doing. Tell me how your heart is. Tell me where it's, it's being challenged. Tell me where you're weak. Tell me how I can pray for you. If that's you already, keep it up. But some, including myself, need a little bit of a kick in the, the hiney. Because at the end of the day, nothing else matters except for proclaiming the excellencies of God. We are made to glorify him. And yet that seems challenging because there's an element of spiritual warfare happening where we would like to talk about anything other than these things. What's God actually doing? Think about your identities that you possess. A father, a mother, a child, a student, an employee, a manager, a stay-at-home mom, a neighbor, We have many, but hopefully one identity drives the whole purpose for your life. I believe it matters. If we understand our identity, then we can go forth and do the very thing we're called to do. If you try to do it without understanding your identity and you want to sit in the identity that you've given yourself, you're going to be very frustrated trying to to accomplish the purposes for God's glory. You'll do it, I think, because I think God's gracious in that, but to understand Wait, wait, wait. I'm a chosen race. God chose me. I'm part of a new family. Maybe you come from a broken family. Maybe you don't know your parents. Maybe you don't have a good relationship with them. Maybe you don't talk to your siblings. Guess what? That's okay. You get a new family. Look around you. A new chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. We have a duty for spiritual sacrifices. We're a holy nation that was once cast out and now set apart for God. And we're God's own special possession. That he dictates how we're used, right? He's the owner. We're not in charge. We didn't buy ourselves. God purchased us through his blood. We belong to him. I want to close with a short story. It's not my own story. It comes from the word of God. Matthew tells it. Mark tells it as well. We're going to look at Luke. You don't have to turn there. It's brief. Luke chapter 8. Jesus interacts with a man possessed by demons, right? Thousands of demons. And if you're familiar with the story, he's cast out, right? No one wants anything to do with him. He's out of the town. People are fearful of him because of how insane he has become. Jesus comes. He heals the man. And listen to this. We'll pick up in verse 37. So he got into the boat. Jesus got into the boat to return. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. 
right? He's like, wait, don't leave, Jesus. I want to be with you. Don't leave me. You just, you just healed me. You see something miraculous for me. Why are you leaving? You can't get in the boat and go. I want to come with you. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And the man went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the times that we forget our purpose. Forgive us for the ways that we seek our identity and other things that are contrary to the identity that you've given us. Father, help us to to recognize our identity, to embrace the identity that you've given us. And out of that, let that be the driver for our life. That our purpose will be found in the identities that you've given us. That we would see that we were meant to glorify you. Help us to do that, not just today, not just this week, but for years to come. That our actions would promote your glory. That people would see our deeds and give you praise. That they wouldn't praise us and think highly of us, but they'd think highly of you for the things that we've done. That we'd point people back to you when they want to congratulate us and tell us how great something was only because of you, Lord. Help us to always give an answer for the hope that we have in you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.